Aaron's the blast, blocked right back out in front by Crawford for the take by Seabrook. Scaled along to bowling off his stick. Turned right back over again and led on out for someone. Paye, he scores! Paye! And the Bruins have won it in overtime. We were talking about it a little bit off the air, and it's kind of frustrating because I remember the day that Terry Pagula became the owner of the Sabres, and he made his famous quote that the Sabres are now in existence to win Stanley Cups. And that brought about kind of an era of optimism in Western New York, uh, a thought that, wow, this team has been so close without the support of ownership a couple of times right. that with the support of ownership and with a little bit of money behind them, wow, we really could be in the existence to win Stanley Cups. But since then, instead what has happened is one of our biggest rivals, a team in the same division that's not that far from here, has won two Stanley Cups, and they're owned by a guy who's from western New York, and has never come out and said anything along the lines of the Boston Bruins are in existence to win Stanley Cups. <laughs> right, right. So kind of a frustrating thing, and we'll talk more about that in three things when we get into the first two games, or three games of the NHL Finals, which have been fantastic, but... Welcome to Season 3, Episode 16 of the Sportscasters. It's June 17, 2013. I'm Steve Bennett. Don Russ, after celebrating his second Father's Day. Right, yes. Good time with the fam? Not bad. Yeah, it was It was nice. What does a two-year-old two do for uh, Dad on Father's Day? I uh, took pictures with Mom and gave me a framed picture. Okay, and then what do you do with that? Put it on the desk or something like that at work? I haven't or? put it anywhere yet. So right now it hasn't found a home. But yeah, it's either going to go on the desk at work or the desk at home. Very nice. Uh, great show for you today. Jason Lockenfora is going to be on the show, another guy who celebrated Father's Day. Actually, both our guests uh, are fathers, as far as I know. Uh, Jason Lockenfora is going to be on the show, talk a little bit about the NFL with us. Also, Jack McCollum is going to be on the show, author of Dream Team, how Michael, Magic, Larry, and Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed the game of basketball forever. He's going to join us uh, to talk about the NBA Finals and his book and a couple of other things. Look forward to talking to Jack. Don't forget, last week we were lucky enough to have Sean McIndoe from Down Goes Brown. I heard a couple of people say that it was a little bit more subdued than they expected. Because he's Because I guess goofy he's kind of crazy, kind of yeah, out yeah. there, and the, the interview came across a little bit more forward, and I wonder if that was kind of my fault. I wonder if I kind of played it too straight. If I should have <laughs> let teed him up for a little bit more jokes. I yeah, don't know. who knows. Maybe he just uh, is... Funnier on paper. Yeah, and Michael Fabiano was also on the show. You can find that on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find it on iTunes, and you can find it on Stitcher Radio. And I had someone ask us about an RSS feed. But my understanding is that's dead technology in a month, right? Isn't Google no longer going to be supporting RSS feeds? I, I have no idea. I always thought the same feed for the iTunes stuff worked well, else, if you but... don't, if you're not an Apple or an iPhone, Stitcher Radio is probably the best bet, or probably any sort of podcast handling thing, right? Uh, but I know that a lot of people who listen on Androids have had success through w- Stitcher. Through right. Stitcher. So, uh, with that said, don't forget to check us out on Facebook at the Facebook.com/slash the Sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. And again, our website is www.sports-casters.com. Next week on the show, we're going to have Greg Cassell, the nephew of 
Howard Cosell uh, from the NFL Network and the NFL Films. We're looking forward to that. Let's get going today with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> As we've been doing for a while now, uh, we're going to kick things off with an NHL NBA playoff update. We'll start with the NBA, who will be done by their season will be over by the next podcast. We will have a champion and it will either be the San Antonio Spurs who hold a three game to two lead or the Miami Heat, who need to win both of their two final games at home, which might be a challenge for them because recently it seems like they've been running on an every-other-night kind of a thing. Right. And Game 1 of the series was pretty good, but since then, it hasn't been that great. There's been a lot of blowouts, and it seems like it's every other night. Like I said, I mean, it seems like the Spurs win easily, then Miami responds by a real dominating performance, and then... You think here they come, and then the next night it's the Spurs. In Game 4, we had Dwayne Wade come out of nowhere, kind of reemerge for the Heat with a great game. Then in Game 5, Manu Ginobili, who's really struggled for the Spurs, reemerges, has a great game. For me, it just hasn't been that captivating of a series. I don't know that anyone expected it to be. I know the Spurs kind of get... But they kind of get pigeonholed as this team that's kind of boring, kind of run in the middle, just kind of take care of business kind of a team. And they have really whooped the, the Heat on occasion, and then those couple games they've been whooped. So we'll have to see. At this point, the main storyline, I guess, is LeBron, and can he elevate his game to the level needed to kind of bring this thing home? Yeah, uh, you talked to me about if I would watch this the longer it goes, and I still haven't yet. So, I mean, this is the test, I guess, to yeah, get a game Do six you and sit seven. Down tonight and watch this. A couple of weird things that have come out of this is, one, the Heat are still the favorite in Vegas to win this. You have to put down like 130 to win 100 on that's interesting. the series. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's a little bit strange to me is you, uh, I listen to talk radio outside of this as well, and you hear a lot of people suggesting that if the Heat win this, then good. The, I mean, the dynasty or whatever, they keep it together and they go for however many rings LeBron said he was going to win. Yeah, not four, not this, five, right. not six, right? If they lose it, though... Uh, they're talking about how maybe they have to blow up the big three and and maybe LeBron goes somewhere else and all this and that. It's just crazy to me how if they win the next two games, they're, they're champions, obviously, and if they lose the next, one of the next two, then they're kind of chumps and they got to start over and go back to the drawing board. Uh, obviously, something isn't right with them because uh, they rolled through the regular season and this is just a different animal and they just they can't seem to – play motivated for a good stretch of time in these last they sure do respond to losses they haven't lost back-to-back games since january i don't think right and their margin of victory in games after losses is really big yeah i would imagine they win tonight yeah you got to think that that building is is pumped and lebron's pumped and that's probably the thought process as to why they're still a favorite is what you just said and they probably go out and win tonight and And then then you're gonna bet against them right Yeah, yeah so Right, like you said, it, it hasn't drawn me to the TV yet. A game seven definitely will. I think a part of the problem is they're just so damn late. They don't even start until nine o'clock in the on East. weekdays. Yep, and the Sunday games have been at eight, and that's even late because on a Sunday, by the time you add a weekend, and right, you sit right. Down, 
especially Father's Day weekend and the U.S. Open this weekend, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, it hasn't been the best NBA Finals, that's for sure. As far as the NHL goes, they're definitely on their way to having one of their better Stanley Cup Finals in a while. The first two games in Chicago were unbelievable. Uh, triple overtime in Game 1, overtime in Game 2. We had uh, Blackhawks victory in Game 1, a Bruins victory on a Danny Pae goal in Game 2. What have been your thoughts here three games in after we saw Boston kind of have a commanding victory at home last night? Yeah, it looks like they're doing what they did to Pittsburgh. Uh, game one for a three-overtime game, it looked like Chicago dominated from the third period through the final three overtimes. It was Seemed just like a matter of time. like they out a little bit. Right. And you thought, well, you win that big, long overtime. You, your offense was kind of clicking all night. You had a few posts and stuff in that game. Maybe Chicago was going to have this series, but... Boston makes it boring. You know what I mean? They really shut people down. They clamp down. I wonder if people will hate this team. I mean, we, I mean, I shouldn't say we, I hate Boston because I'm a Sabres fan and it's just what you do. But, uh, I wonder if people will look back on this team, if they win another cup or two and think of them as like the New Jersey devils. Like they're just a shut down defensive team. Game three got off to a weird start too, because we had Hosa suddenly scratched after yeah, warmups. Out of nowhere. And also, there was the collision between Lucic and Chara. Right. Chara ended up going off, and then he missed some time in the first period. I guess ultimately he was okay. But kind of an interesting thing. But last night was really the game where Boston imposed their will. And I wonder if Chicago is going to regret not getting another goal or two in the first period and a half of Game 2, where they really dominated the game. I think at one point in the middle of the period, too, shots were like 21-6 to or something like that. And then Chris Kelly ended up getting his first goal of the playoffs and kind of woke Boston up, and then they ended up winning that game in overtime, and since then they've been rolling. So I look back at that game, too, that first period and a half, and I wonder if that is going to be something Chicago's going to regret not getting an extra goal there, maybe putting Boston away and going back to Boston 2-1 instead of 1-1. But we've seen Chicago down before in this playoffs, by the way. Uh, They were down 3-1 to to Detroit, who's not as good as Boston, obviously. Right. Uh, but we've seen them come back. I wonder about Taves, who only has one goal this period. If we're going to find out when things are over that he has some kind of wrist he hasn't been injury or very good like all that. playoffs, and he's really struggling at the faceoff circle. The Bruins are doing a great job there, winning a lot of faceoffs, which has been really big. Yeah, so, a lot of guys are. I mean, Patrice Bergeron, uh, for non-hockey people, isn't a household name, but he's a superstar. And uh, if they go on to win another cup, I think you can make a pretty solid argument that. Zdeno Chara is not only the best defenseman, but the best player in the league right now, uh, especially what he did to Crosby and Malkin in that last series. He might be the – if you're going to build a team, maybe not because of his age, but you might rather build around him than a guy even like Crosby. Which leads us into the next thing here is the NHL awards were announced on Saturday, June 15th this past weekend. One second before you get into that. Yeah. Based on what you've seen in three games, would your prediction for the series change at all? Well, I mean, I predicted Chicago in five. Okay, so you'd have to change that, obviously. Right. Uh, Yeah, probably. I mean, Chicago, this is like, it reminds me a lot of watching the Pittsburgh series where, although at Pittsburgh it was down 2-0 or something at that point, people are like, what's wrong with Pittsburgh? Can they turn it on? And Pittsburgh just never could. So... I don't. I don't know if Chicago can turn it on and flip the switch. It's going to be real tough if Host is not 100. percent They settle play, but I mean he's one of the superstars on their team that makes their offense go. But Boston's just figured something out, and 
hopefully uh, the Chicago coaching staff can do a better job than Pittsburgh's did. Otherwise, I, I don't even know if Chicago will win a game. Another game, that is. But, yeah, the awards were announced this weekend, and uh, we'll just run down them real quick. Maybe I'm not going to go through all the nominees unless there's something maybe weird that we want to argue about. But uh, the heart for the MVP went to Alex Ovechkin. His third. His third. That's fair. I, I think I'm fine with that. Uh, Vesna went to Bobrovsky, who now they might lose. Get to the KHL, right? Yeah, he's trying to sign over. Or he's threatening to sign overseas if they don't give him a better offer or match or something. Uh, the Norris went to P.K. Subban. I thought Ryan Sutter should have won that, but I don't have a huge problem with Subban. One thing I would say is he did hold out. He was looking for a five-for-five five deal, and that ship has sailed. He's going to get a much bigger contract <laughs> yeah. than that now. Yeah, uh, Chris Letang, one of the finalists in that awards. Another Boy, guy did gonna he get have paid. a terrible Won't terrible matter, though. Playoffs. No, no, it won't. He'll still get paid, but he did have a terrible, especially terrible third round. That's kind of the argument for this best defenseman award, that there should be a second best offensive or most dynamic defenseman type award because Suter's probably the best defensive defenseman of them. Uh, the Calder for the Rookie of the Year. Only surprise here, I would say, is that Yakupov wasn't even nominated. Seven, yeah, he finished fifth. 17 goals in a rookie season. and Corey Conacher finished sixth. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan Hubbardu of the Panthers won that, and that's got to be nice for the Panthers. Usually they're... Yeah, I kind of thought Gallagher from Montreal would win, but again, no problem with this award. Sad kind of came, came on late, or Sad, however yep. you say his name. Uh, the Ted Lindsay Award is a most outstanding players as selected by the NHLPA. Crosby? Crosby won this award, and that's I'm fine with that, except for he was hurt for he a missed good chunk games. of the season. Yeah, he missed 12 regular season games. Yeah, which is over... Which is exactly 25% of the season, right. right. So maybe there's just a little hate for Ovechkin there from the fellow players. Uh, the Selkie for best defensive forward uh, went to Jonathan Taves. A lot of good players there, Bergeron, Datsuk, Taves. I don't know enough about that. I don't know if that's an award. They just look at your plus minus, plus your goals or something. Right, yeah. I mean, Michael Pekka won that, but he was more of a defensive shutdown specialist. These guys are all way better two-way players than he ever was. Uh Jack Adams, Coach of the Year, went to Bruce Boudreaux, the Ducks. No problem with that. Oh, I'm sorry. It went to Paul McLean of the Senators. I don't really have a problem with that either. Right. Yeah, no, the Senators, considering what they lost right. over the course still of the year the to still make the playoffs, right. he did a great job. Uh, General Manager of the Year, this is always a weird award to me, Ray Shiro. Uh, okay. Sure. I guess. Yeah. yeah, why not? I might prefer. Some of the trades he made going into the playoffs turned out to not work out. Right, yeah, that's, I guess, but these are regular season awards, so that, yep. that's a weird award in itself. That should really probably come after the playoffs. Lady Bing, most gentlemanly, went to Marty St. Louis, who's won it a few times before, I think. Yep, he also won the out Ross for most points, and I think they said he had, what, four penalties or something like that all year? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, some of these awards I never heard of. The well, NHL Foundation Player Award. Who won the Messier Leadership Award? That's probably the last relevant one. Daniel Alfredson. Okay. One over Dustin Brown. Wow, Dustin Brown, huh? Uh, and Jonathan Taves. It's a leadership on and off the ice thing. I guess it doesn't necessarily mean gentlemanly play because Dustin Brown will be eliminated for that right. purpose. But uh, Daniel Alfredson, oh, he's, he's a likable guy for as much as a saber killer as he was in his career. He's a stand-up guy. Yeah, Ovechkin, most goals scored out Ross St. Louis. Corey Crawford and Ray Emery won the William Jennings for the team that allowed the fewest goals. So... The awards that you can argue about, there weren't really many arguments. Probably the Norris Trophy. Maybe, right. Maybe, but nothing that big. 
All right, my second thing for today, I had a lot of fun watching the golf this weekend. I thought it was a great U.S. Open. I loved Marion as a host course for the U.S. Open outside of Philadelphia. It was very, very difficult. Yeah, it was cool to watch. How- really difficult. It was great to watch those guys struggle. Obviously, Justin Rose is the U.S. champion at plus one. Right. So no golfer yeah, that's played cool. under par for the weekend. It was really fun. It was a really challenging course. I felt really bad for Phil Mickelson. I really wanted to see him win this. And not because he took a private plane overnight and <laughs> seen his daughter's graduation. I thought that was a little overblown, but... The guy's a he's a he's probably the second best golfer in the Phil era. He's had a lot of looks at this. This is his second second place finish, I believe. At the Masters. At the US Open. At the US he's Open. won a couple right, Masters. Right. And uh I wanted to see him get it done. I thought he was gonna get it done when he hit that Eagle, I think on eleven on Sunday, holing out from the from the fairway there, the rough, wherever he was. But really it was a great tournament. I thought Marion was a great place to have the tournament and it's got me excited to uh, see what happens the rest of the season. And he's always a story. Tiger Woods wasn't a factor despite no. how good he's been all season. He really dominant. Putt. He couldn't putt and he didn't make the shots he needed to make. And basically he fell victim to the course as a lot of golfers did, including the number two player in the world, Rory McIlroy. So a very interesting thing. Congratulations to Justin Rose, the first British golfer to win a major, I think in 30 years. And, uh, I'm bummed out that Phil didn't get it, but I'm sure he's going to survive it. Yeah. But he said, you know, that he admitted that was his to win. It was yep. out there for him, and he didn't get it done. He, and He now in majors since 1990, when he first appeared in majors, has eight second-place finishes and seven third-place finishes. So in 15 majors since 1990. five championships? Yeah, five I'm not, majors, I'm not sure. They don't have that right in front of me, but... Um, yeah, that's crazy. And between 99 and 2003, he's had six second-place finishes. So I saw a stat, actually, that they put up on the screen that said going into the last day tied or with a lead, he's only finished second once. He's won every other tournament, and the one he finished second was when he kind of famously melted yeah, down in Yeah, in the last hole he hit it on the tent. Yeah. So I'm thinking, watching this stat, oh, okay, he's going to do this. But I guess his other stat won out. Uh, my last thing this week, I don't know why I don't watch this show. Well, I don't have HBO, but uh, I know it's interesting. I know you're always interested. There's Love it. Sound, it's sound bites galore for talk radio and all that type of stuff. But Cincinnati gets another hard knocks. That, to me, even as someone that doesn't watch it, is a little bit disappointing. Cause it's, I, I just, What's the appeal there? I think it comes down to they were willing to do it. Yeah, and uh, you know what I mean. I think I heard there was only one other team that was seriously interested. I know the Bills have said they're not interested, and they're a train wreck of a team. Uh, so for them to not want to do it is pretty crazy. I guess the big trouble, and even Roger Goodell has said this, is the cut aspect of it. It's kind of a fascinating human story to watch unfold. But in essence, you're watching people lose their livelihood, lose their right? livelihood and lose have their dreams ended for some of them on national TV. So while it makes for great soap opera and all that, and the owners and general managers that speak to them always kind of handle it with grace, it's still kind of a a tough thing to watch. And even the commissioner has said that it's a little bit of a conflict of interest as far as that goes. But it's cool to see that the show is back after not – it didn't have a season last year. Yeah, Miami was last year. the year before the lockout season we didn't have it. And that's my take is, like, I'd rather have hard knocks with the Bengals than no hard knocks. Sure. Because it's a great human interest story regardless. And NFL Films does a great job with it. And even though I'd rather see 
maybe the Saints and Drew Brees and Sean Payton, Sean Payton's first thing back, or right, right. New England, who'd probably be the most fascinating team for this, the way that they yeah. operate and the Tebow circus and all the stuff that goes along with New England. New England did do a small behind. Didn't Bill they Belichick a, did Belichick a football did a life where that's they followed right, him. That's right. So there was that, um, but they'd be a great one. I was talking to Chris Berg from SI, who comes on the show quite a bit, and he threw out the Redskins, who'd be a really interesting one with RG3. and where Seattle might be. They're kind of like a sexy pick this year for to be a but Super Bowl contender. My take is let's have it instead of not having it. Sure. You know what I mean? So, And I wish there was more teams willing to do it. So it'd be great to see at some point you know, almost all the teams represented in some way. All right, my third thing for today. Oh, and just to add on to that, Mickelson has won four majors. Okay. He's won three Masters and one PGA. So four He's wins, two six, short two, of a, right. six seconds and seven thirds. Eight seconds and seven thirds. Eight seconds yeah. and seven thirds. Six seconds at the U.S. Open. Right. So that's 15, 18 majors in the top three. That's a great career. That's a Hall of Fame career. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. My third thing is just a smaller third thing. You always think of ESPN as this giant billion-dollar corporation, but apparently they're not – immune to cuts and layoffs and this week they made a layoff that has really generated a lot of negative press for the network they laid off howie schwab who's most known for being the schwab in the stump the schwab game show which was hosted by Stuart scott i always love watching it and this guy was into it and brilliant and hard to stump and he made this statement on his facebook after being let go After 26 years at ESPN, I'm extremely disappointed to say farewell. I've been proud of my association and my work during my tenure. I was a loyal employee, displayed respect for others, worked with numerous charities, represented the company well. I always did everything asked of me and more. What did I get in return today? Word that I should get lost. The only thing that mattered was my salary, which in my view was the lone reason I lost my job. And many people have come to his defense and support on social media, Twitter, and Facebook. And, uh, you know, ESPN's taken a lot of heat over this, and I wonder if they know, would have known the reaction would be as big as it was if they would have just bit the bullet. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, they're, they're huge. Who, who knows? They probably don't care. Probably not. And it's not going to make a difference to them. Nobody's going to stop watching ESPN. Right. I mean, really, they have no competition here. So, But uh, sorry to hear that. Schwab. Bummer. So that's it for three things for today. And uh, like I said, we're going to have Jason Lock and Four on the show, and we're going to have Jack McCollum on the show. We have uh, Greg Cassell on the show next week. So a lot of great stuff coming up. Let's take a break and come back with Jason Lock and Four. Our first guest is from Baltimore, Maryland, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. Earlier in his career, he worked at the Detroit Pre-Fest, covering the Detroit Red Wings. After leading the Red Wings to a few Stanley Cups, he spent 10 years at the Washington Post, including five years he spent on the Washington Redskins beat. In 2009, he joined the NFL Network, where he is an NFL insider, blogger, and regular contributor to NFL Total Access and other programs on the station. In 2011, he moved to CBS Sports, where he appears on the network's pregame show each week and writes for CBS.com. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Jason Lackenfora. What's up, Jason? How's it going? I'm I'm still waiting for my Red Wings... 
Stanley Cup ring. Yeah, did they, I never never sent me one. I led them to back to back Stanley Cups. Huh? Someone should let Eisenman and those guys know that. Right, and they get no rings, huh? No acknowledgement, nothing. No, Name no. on the cup, nothing like that, huh? I wish I could say that you know Vladimir Putin stole mine, but no, I never got to hear it. That's that's really that's rough. Did you go to the uh, final four this year with uh, your orange teammates? No, no, I'm not a big I'm not a big hoops guy, and I'm not a big Rawat Syracuse guy, so. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I didn't see. I, I barely watched any of the final of, of that whole entire tournament. What I don't do you, think I saw more than a couple minutes. Well, I know you're not a big Ra uh, Ra Syracuse guy, but what about Marone? What do you think? What kind of coach do you think he's going to be for the Bills here? You know, it, it's hard to project how that's going to work at the pro level. I mean, it's failed more often than not. What he has going for him, though, is, is he, this isn't his first rodeo. This isn't a Chip Kelly coming in completely green without really any understanding of the NFL as players, what makes it fit front offices, player procurement, salary cap. You know, Moran's been there. He, he's led an offense. Um, he's been around the pro game. He's been a part of some some pretty hot, you know, potent offenses at the pro game level before. So, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, that's just a tough division, though. I mean, I think New England continues to dominate that division as long as Brady and Belichick are there. Um you know, will the Bills be, be able to get the kind of talent it's going to take to compete? Um, and can they get quarterback figured out? Because at this point, it's pretty clear, you know, in the AFC, you've got to get through someone with a ring to get there. I mean, in the come playoff time, you're getting, you have to get through a Brady, a Manning, a Flacco, a Roethlisberger. Um, you know, that's, that's big boy football. And, uh, you know, I think the Bills have a ways to go before they're willing, I should say willing, before they're able to really compete with those kind of teams on a week-in, week-out basis. Well, I think the people in Buffalo would take just, you know, a playoff appearance at this point. You know what I mean? Just yeah, anything. It, it, but You know, it, it, it's been a while. Um, you know, I just, I'm waiting to see how it all fits. I, I thought that, you know, that it was odd to me why Buddy Nix got hired in the first place. It seemed to be a case where, you know, an older owner was, was very much comfortable with an older general manager. and You know, they've gone through various, machinations there. I mean, Russ Brandon was kind of the GM for a while, and then Russ was more on the business side. And now Russ really is the de facto owner, which I think is a good thing for Bill's fans. Um, I think it's good to have him running the day-to-day operations, and, and he obviously has football operations people in place there. I was, I thought Doug probably should have got that job three or four years ago if they were going to go that route and let him learn on the fly rather than going with someone in Buddy Nix, who was a great scout. But, but I don't know if he's a leader of fan. I don't know that he had that. The, the, the front office experience, experience I'm sorry, to, to be involved in contracts and salary cap. And, and you know, he, he was more of a guy who you would want to run your college scouting operations, but I don't know if you wanted to pick all your players. So I think that kind of set them back. And, and some of the free agent signings have been a little odd, and they've certainly found some players in the draft. But I, I think they, again, have a ways to go to get that 53 to where it needs to be to, to really be a playoff team. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were we had Malcolm Kelly on the show mostly just for fun and because I'm a huge fan of his freestyle rap from uh, after the uh, Nebraska Big Twelve Championship game. I don't know if you ever seen it, but it's brilliant. Um, but we got into something a little bit bigger, and he obviously never really worked out for him at the Redskins. Lots of injuries, and I know you had spent some time covering the Redskins. Obviously, a lot of years on that beat. And one thing that Malcolm that said, was there, I covered that draft. That I think that was the 2009 draft. That that Redskins draft. I mean, that's. Yeah, it's, it's like they went for littered, it. It's littered with misses. It's littered with guys with health issues or character issues and people who are falling off of or down other people's draft boards. But, you know, the Redskins, Vinny Serrato, Dan Snyder, they 
they kept they kept coming after the Malcolm Kellys, whose knees were in really bad shape even coming out of college. You know, Devin Thomas, who was known to be an, you know a guy with off field issues, a big ego, wasn't a complete receiver, probably just a gadget guy. Fred Davis, a lot of off field concerns there; those have manifested themselves. And he's a guy now. If he gets tough positive one more time for pop, he's out of the league for a year. Um, okay. You know, they drafted a punter really high. Uh, they way overdrafted Carson Palmer's brother, Jordan Palmer, who should have been drafted in the first place. Uh, that was, uh, you know, Chad Reinhardt probably turned out to be the best pick in that draft. He's turned out to be a serviceable, uh, you know, offensive lineman for the Bills, but it obviously took him a long time to develop. The real interesting thing that Malcolm said was it seems like he's really bitter with the Redskins training camp. He, Without kind of saying it, he kind of felt like they kind of pushed him back early a few times. And, and what he cited, too, was just the way things happened with RG3 last year. I kind of thought, going into it, he might say, you know, the field there isn't quite as playable as it should be for the National Football League. But he more took the stance that that dude shouldn't even been out there. Everyone in America knows he shouldn't have been out there. But that's the culture there. They rush their guys back. They want their guys out as soon as they can. Did you ever get that feeling when you were in Washington covering the beat there? Across the board, no. I, I can't say that, that that's something I've heard. I mean, there were people who had issues with the medical department at one time or another. I know um, Brandon Noble had a bad infection. There were some MRSA concerns um, at times there, not to the extent that I think the Browns had it, but there was a little issue with staph infections and, and MRSA, and they had to change maybe some of their, their policies uh, You know, in terms of um, uh, certain precautions and, and certain things when guys had open wounds and cuts and things like that. But I think Malcolm was a tough spot because, again, a lot of teams had him off their board because of his medical issues. And these guys took him pretty high. And there was an expectation that we're going to show you a little bit. So, you know, but then again, every single time he did go out there, there was a setback. I mean, I just remember back then they still had two-a-days. I mean, he couldn't get through two-a-days, even I mean, from his first camp. I mean, it just seemed like every time they hit the field and any sort of contact drill, he had an issue, and and I don't know exactly when things healed and when they didn't. And you know, I'm not privy to all the the inner workings that were going on there. But I mean, it was a bit unique in that you you got the sense that they really wanted this to work out. They really wanted to find this diamond in the rough, but his body just wouldn't cooperate. And um, I'm sure there were times where maybe they thought you know he could come back, but he didn't think he was quite ready. But I can just tell you that got to be frustrating for everyone. And then you know there were some teammates there who couldn't figure out like, is this guy? not pushing himself enough, is he pushing himself too hard, you know, why is he always breaking down, but I'll just go back to the original medical of him coming out of Oklahoma, and, you know, he had some, some surgeries there, I don't know that everyone thought that those things were done maybe as clean as they should have been, and he was a medical red flag on a lot of boards that year, and those issues certainly manifested themselves. Yeah, you know, we're at that point of the off season where the biggest stories are a couple of jerks in Atlanta making fun of Steve Gleason for some reason, or, you know... Chad Johnson getting, you know, it's like, it's kind of that kind of, a lot of guys maybe take vacation around that time. We're coming out of, uh, most teams are finishing up, mini camps are finished with them, and now we're waiting for training camps. Did anything big for you come out of mini camps that now you're going to put an extra emphasis on in terms of monitoring it during training camps or in this period between? Not really. I, I don't, I mean, I know that there's a need to feed the beast, so there's a constant hype machine for right. every OTA mini camp session, you know, anytime guys are in shorts and t-shirts throwing a ball around, someone's going to stand there and do the stats and say who's looking good and who's not, but I mean, the teams themselves can't read too much into it. The smart teams know they can't. It's 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 glorified practice. It's, it's workout warrior stuff, and it's not football. It's 
not even a close approximation of football. And there's a reason they have a preseason. Um, and yeah, it's not what it used to be in terms of how much practice, how long they practice, and how hard they go. But that's when you start really making evaluations. I mean, you might think you start to know things about a guy or two here or there, but you know you don't really know them. So, no, I mean, you know, the fact that you know, Tyler Wilson had some good practices in Oakland and now he's the number one quarterback there. No, I mean, look, Matt Flynn is going to be someone who had to show something one way or the other in the preseason anyway, no matter who his backup was. So, you know, I don't think that, that changes a whole lot. I mean, in Cleveland, you know, Brad Brandon Whedon wasn't scintillating. He goes into camp the facto starter, but could he lose that job? Absolutely, and I don't think anything happened at OTAs changed that one way or the other. I mean, Brian Hoyer's dressed in their office. So, I mean, you look at certain position battles a little bit, but no, I mean, now the key thing is, uh, try to be getting your draft picks signed anymore, because everybody will. There won't really be any holdouts of any great magnitude, but it's hoping you guys stay out of trouble. It's hoping nobody gets arrested. It's hoping nobody plays pick-up basketball and shatters their, you know, Achilles or something like that. And that, that's really where things will go. And then there'll be some teams that still have contractual business to get done. The deadline to sign franchise players is July the 15th. I wrote a column today uh, on CBSSports.com kind of weighing the likelihood that, that those franchise guys get long-term deals before that deadline. By and large, I think most of them won't. Um, but there's, there's still the potential for some of that to get done. And there's a lot of players uh, who are in line for extensions as well. And, and those talks will continue even while people are on vacation. And certain teams would like to get some of those deals done before camp starts. I mean, Will many much of that happen? Probably not. But there definitely will be a good group of guys who get extensions before the season starts. So you're always monitoring those kind of things as well. What about the Victor Cruz situation? I know he did sign his tenure, but that seemed to be so that it wouldn't get lowered to the $700,000 range. Is he a guy who's going to have to play out that season on this deal, or is there still a chance they can get something more long-term worked out? Well, they're kind of playing he and Akeem Nitz at the same time and seeing if someone blinks and if you know, someone makes that jump and says, I need the money. They've always got the threat of the franchise tag out there for one of those guys as well. It's fairly expensive for wide receivers, but the Giants are pretty good about massaging the cap, and they're not afraid of cutting older guys and clearing out cap room and, and you know, reinvesting it in, in the young. So uh, that, that's always, you know, a bit of leverage for the team this time of year also. So, I mean, there's no guarantee that that gets done. I mean, some people thought simply by him hiring, you know, CAA slash Rock Nation, all of a sudden that meant they'd get a deal done, but uh, they've been talking about this for several years, and they haven't come close on the comparable. You know, they want to pay him as a as a nice slot receiver. He would want to be paid paid closer to what you know the top outside receivers in the league are getting. Um, that, that's that's a bit of a golf to to you know eventually get through. So yeah, could he end up playing this thing out? Absolutely. Could they both end up playing it out, and one of them get franchised, and one of them walking, or one of them signing the extension, and the other one hitting the market? Uh, yeah, that's that's a real possibility. We kind of talked about the non-impact of mini camps, but as we get closer to training camps open, are there certain things that you're real excited to find out? Are there certain places you really want to go, something you really want to see? I mean, what what are kind of the big things we got to get ready to watch here as training camps are going to start to open in about, what, six weeks, maybe a little less than that even? Yeah, yeah, I was just kind of sitting here trying to go through another draft and how I'm going to try to coordinate all the places I want to go. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm really interested. In this I want to see the Seattle Seahawks, man. I mean, they they were a couple of breaks away from playing for a chance to go to the Super Bowl. I love the talent they put together there. I want to see how Percy Harvin fits into that thing. Just that whole arms race between Seattle and San Francisco. I and mean, I think I'm going to start out west as soon as camps open and, and try to spend some time with those teams and um, you know just get a look see it at the early implementation of, of what they have going on there. But 
I'm really intrigued by that. Um, you know, the Ravens lost all this talent, and everyone's talking about how do you replace Ed Reed and Ray Lewis as leaders and, and as emotional spark plugs and you know, Anquan Bold. You go on and on down the list. I actually think they'll be better in a lot of ways, and that defense in particular I think will be quicker and, and better and and more stout against the run and more able to attack the quarterback this year than a year ago. So you always want to see how the Super Bowl winners, uh, you know, respond and react and, and what's the tone of their camp. You know, the Steelers, can they bounce back to the down year? And some people think that's a team that's trending downward because of age. You know, others, you can look at where they were before Big Ben got hurt last year, and that looked like an offense that was about to really explode. So you know, I kind of want to see where they are. Um, you know, Peyton Manning, everyone's going to make a big deal out of every ball he throws and what is his arm speed. And, but I don't really care about him in training camp. I want to see him in January, you know. So to me, that's all about can he win in in the wind, in adverse conditions, not in a dome at the end of the year when he's thrown a lot of balls. You know, what is, what is he looking like then? Um, you know, New Orleans I'm intrigued by and, and the, the return of Sean Payton and does that immediately – you know, return their swagger and is Drew Brees the guy he was, you know, an MVP of a couple of years ago and can that defense make some strides and be and be competitive. And then all these young quarterbacks, I mean Kaepernick, Newton, um, yeah, you, you always want to get a look at them anytime you can and, and see if they look like they really are on the cusp of, of making that next move and and, you know, getting themselves in line, especially in the case of Newton and Kaepernick who are going into year three to get themselves some monster contracts at the end of the year. Do you think these guys like Newton and Ka- – well, maybe not so much Newton, but certainly to some degree, but Kaepernick and Griffin and all the guys have had so much success with the read option, especially last year. Do you think they can cons- sustain that or do you think we're going to find – or we should probably find out pretty early the answer to that question, right? If there was an adjustment to be made, you'd figure this offseason would be the time that it would have been made. Yeah, and it's weird. It's almost That's almost more of an NFC thing than an AFC. And you think about who really runs that stuff there and then who will want to run it, you know, having a Chip Kelly in the mix now and – Trustman's talked about running a little bit of it with Cutler. It's an NFC thing, and I know teams over there last year that struggled with it, like Green Bay, have spent a lot of time this offseason from a defensive perspective trying to, you know, get ahead of that curve and, and, and be better prepared to deal with it. And then teams that have had success with it, like San Francisco, go out and hire Eric Mangini to basically self-scout them and, and act as another defensive coordinator on staff to try to tell them their tendencies and their tells and to, to be a defensive mind in their offensive planning meeting. So it's not going away. Now, will these guys be durable enough? Will kids be getting their knees blown out? Um, will coordinators become reluctant to keep running this stuff in some degree because of these injuries? You know, that, that remains to be seen. I can't predict the future there. But, I, I mean, I don't, look, I don't know the, the percentages that it's run will increase greatly, but I do certainly believe that uh, teams will continue to run it as a wrinkle as something that forces teams to prepare. And they've seen the success. I mean, this is a copycat league. And, yeah, kids are getting dinged up, but those teams are winning. I mean, Washington went from, is Shanahan going to keep his job, to, you know, how far are they from the Super Bowl? And, you know, San Francisco and Seattle, were, San Francisco was a play away from winning the Super Bowl. Seattle was, you know, a timeout away from being in the championship game and maybe playing for a Super Bowl. Um, you know, Cam Newton's had two dominant seasons by any rookie quarterback standards and any second quarterback, second year quarterback standards, you know, he may just be taking off and, and I think he, he maybe has just scratched the surface to some degree. Um, so yeah, it will be a dominant talking point this season. I, I don't want to say it's here to stay, but I certainly think it's more than a passing trend. I think teams will continue to, to 
utilize it as long as they can have success with it. And some of these kids are, are built differently than others. I mean, I think Kaepernick and Cam Newton, their body type's a whole lot different than Russell Wilson and RG3. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and, and how, you know, how durable some of these kids are. The Sportscasters finishing up here with Jason Lackenfora, who you can find on Twitter at Jason Lackenfora, and you can find his columns on www.cbssports.com. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you made the move over to CBS Sports, and since you've done that, it seems like the CBS Sports as an entity has really grown. I mean, you've got CBS Sports, the network with, the, you know, Jim Rome has come on board, and he's got the TV show, and he's on CBS Radio, and... Obviously, you, there's CBS where you do the uh, the NFL Today. What about the growth of CBS and its involvement in sports and, and what things that have developed since you've been there that you are excited about? I mean, do you get into things like being on the radio station or maybe making an appearance on Rome and being a part of that or maybe doing something yeah. for the cable channel? Yeah. No, absolutely. I love it. I mean, CBS Radio has really only been in existence since uh, like January the 3rd. And, you know, we're already second behind ESPN Radio in terms of any, you know, sports syndicated uh, programming, and that's only going to grow, and the synergy between CBS Television and CBS Radio is only going to grow. So I'm really excited about some of the things we may have planned um, for this fall from a football perspective, perhaps nationally, and certainly um, with all the various owned and operated stations we have across the country. I'm, I'm definitely fired up about doing more radio. It's awesome to have. Uh, you know, some of the shows we have on CBS Sports Network. And I think us having the Super Bowl this year was a great uh, platform to show what we can do with a huge event. And I thought the programming we had from Jackson Square in New Orleans and the various other sets we had all week on, on uh, the week of the Super Bowl on CBS Sports Network was with some amazing stuff and some of the stuff I'm most proud to have been a part of. Uh, you know, the NFL today, uh, you know, that that's just such a, a hallmark, uh, you know, of sports television programming, and I'm, I'm just flattered and honored to be a part of that again. And, uh, yeah, I think we'll certainly continue to add more NFL programming over time to the sports network as well. I love being a part of uh, NFL Monday quarterback. I mean, I really think that that's one of the smartest shows I've, I've been a part of, you know, at any network. Um, just the combination of great quarterback minds that are on that show every week, Phil Sims, Rich Gannon, Dan Fouts, all the quarterbacks in the CBS family. I, I think that show is really smart. And, and highbrow, and if, if you're kind of a thinking man's football fan, and you don't want to just talk about Tim Tebow, you don't want to hear the lowest common denominator stuff, you know, controversy today drowns down your throat 24 hours a day. I think that show on Monday, on Monday evenings would really capture a lot of people's imagination. And, and at the website, uh, we've got some plans for expanded podcasts and, and maybe a Thursday night uh, pregame show that we might be doing on CBSSports.com going into uh, the Thursday night games that you'd be able to watch on the internet, and more synergy between the website and the sports network as well. So, yeah, I mean, that was some of the, the stuff that, that really attracted me to CBS in the first place. And uh, I, I think we'll, we'll continue to to add more and more programming, and everyone knows that when it comes to American sports, you know, the NFL is, is that monster. And, and no matter how much you give people, it seems like there's always a demand for more. So I think over time, as the network gradually uh, grows, you know, obviously the NFL would be a big part of that. Last thing we'll let you go. You got any uh, tickets for any good summer concerts you're looking forward to? Anything music-wise going on this summer? I know you're a big music I, fan. I don't. I don't. Um, you know, usually during the season, I'm in New York on weekends, so I saw a ton of shows in New York, usually on Friday night. Um, we do the NFL today, Sunday morning, and then you know, Sunday night I take the train back home. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to build a training camp schedule around uh, getting to see one of these replacement shows, whether it's in Denver 
or Chicago. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to swing it, but I'm trying. Um, I'd like to get to Lollapalooza in Chicago and see The Cure and some of the bands um, that are going to be playing there. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. So, no, it's tough, man, with, you know, work and three kids and vacation and everybody having camps and this or that, softball, t-ball, swim team, all that. Uh, I don't. I don't have anything lined up, but uh, you, you never know. I'm, I'm always game, so and I check the listings and see what's going on. What are you rocking right now? Ah, uh, you know, I, I I gotta say, like I I don't get into a whole lot of new stuff anymore. I guess I'll just become an old man. But yeah. I, I just you know my iPod hasn't changed much in a couple of years now. I, it's just kind of put it on shuffle and and go where it takes me. But there hasn't been. I don't, I mean, I hear stuff, I still, you know, I'll listen to, like, uh, we've got a great local station here in Towson, um, I think one of the best um, NPR stations in, in the country, um, and it's an all-music format, free-form at Towson University, WTMD, so I'm always hearing new stuff, but I, I just, I don't know, I just go back to what, what I've always listened to, and, you know, whatever pops up on the iPod, um, but, yeah, I mean, not to say there's not a lot of good stuff in there, but it's just hard, I just don't, I just... It's like, am I going to go buy the Alabama Shakes, or am I going to go, you know, fill in my, my, you know, I'm missing David Bowie, you know, CD. It's like, eh, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go back to the classics. But there's there's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, you know, so we'll see. When my kids get a little older, maybe they'll kind of force me into uh, getting behind some newer bands. But otherwise, it's just I kind of ride with what got me here. Well, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. My pleasure, guys. Have a great week. All right, I want to thank Jason Lackenfora for being on the show today. It's always great to have Jason on the podcast. Over 300,000 followers on Twitter for Jason Lackenfora. Nice. That's a big guess for us. That's, that's the a, name that's I couldn't... That's a big get. That's the name, uh, going back a few podcasts, I mean, I forget names all the time, but that was... He's our Adam Schefter. That, that's the name I couldn't pull up. Yeah, he's always been great to us, been on a handful of times. I know last time we talked to him, he was on the train, headed from Baltimore to New York to get ready for the NFL today. And uh, he was kind enough to join us today, so thanks to Jason. Um, a couple things to go over in the book club today. First thing is, for the last few weeks, we've been following the Kickstarter project that has been organized by our good friend, the Blue Horseshoe, Zach Rosenfield, and is the project of one of our former guests, Ed Cunningham, who is the award-winning producer of Undefeated and also one of the producers of kind of cult documentary King of Kong, Fistful right, of right. Quarters. Their new project is Finders Keepers, a story about a grill that was sold, and then the person who bought the grill discovered a leg in it. Why their Twitter name is at Legging Grill. Mm-hmm. Luckily, this project has been successfully funded. They have 451 backers for $81,132 of the $80,000 goal that they set out for. And I guess what I wondered about this, and Miss Caster and I were talking about this last night. With about 10 hours to go, they had just about 71-8 in. And I kind of figured that there's no way when you get to that point, you let your project go unfunded, right? Yeah. There's somebody got to be there with the last 8,000 to make sure you get that 70,000 that's been committed. Yeah, I don't remember if we talked about this on or off the air, but you can't take... You get nothing if you don't yeah, get to 80. Yeah, you can't take part of it. So, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, we'd have to ask them. Maybe they, Maybe he... 
called in a favor or knew some people or whatever, but or maybe just the producers themselves are like, let's get as much right. of this eighty thousand as we can, and we'll fill it. And I don't know if that's a dirty trick, and I'm not accusing them of that either. I'm just wondering out loud. I'm not saying that's what happened. I don't have any knowledge of what happened in the last hours of this Kickstarter. I was just wondering that out loud last night. If that's right, right. part of the process, if when you get to a certain point. You say, okay, if we can get there, we'll put the rest in if we have to to make sure we get what we did. So I guess this means that Finders Keepers is going to be a film. I don't know what the timetable is, but I would say the best thing to do is to keep an eye on them on Twitter at Leg and Grill and, of course, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Finders Keepers movie. And we'll keep track of this and probably have Zach or Ed on the show again to talk about it. And uh, thank you if you were one of the 400 who uh 400 plus who helped fund this project and we look forward to to seeing what becomes of it all right second piece of business for the book club for the second straight year uh we are going to announce our book club book of the month book of the year last year at this time we did it as well and peyton uh sweetness excuse me right right uh the walter peyton book by jeff perlman was the book club book of the year and jeff joined us on the podcast to discuss that and this year, our book club book of the year is Dream Team by Jack McCollum, how Ma- Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquer the world and change the game of basketball forever. I was kind of between this book, uh, the Frank DeFord book, and I thought there was a third one I was thinking of. I kind of went with this one because it was the topic I was least interested in going into the book, but still got about equal pleasure out of the okay. book, reading it, yeah. you know what I mean? In reading it, I didn't think I'd be as excited about a book about the Dream Team as I ended up being about this book. So I think that's what put it over the edge for me. Uh, the book is now available in paperback, although it wasn't really changed all that much from the hardcover to paperback version. But of course, paperback books are always a bit cheaper. Um, and it's also available in all of the ebook formats as well. So We'll talk about Dream Team in a few minutes with Dream Team's author, Jack McCollum, who is nice enough to come on the podcast and talk with, with us again. So let's take a break and come back and talk to the author of the now book club, book of the month, book of the year, which is probably a bigger honor than when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, the Basketball Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure assume. it's right up there. It's right up there with that. So let's take a break and come right back with Jack. <laughs> Our next guest resides from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Muhlenberg College with a master's from Lehigh University. He has worked at four newspapers, and in 1981, he started at Sports Illustrated, where he famously covered the NBA. He is the author of nine books, including the New York Times bestselling Dream Team. He is a winner of the Kurt Gowdy Award, given annually by the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame for outstanding basketball writing. He is one of the most accomplished writers to ever appear on the podcast and is making his Second appearance today, a warm sportscaster. Welcome to Jack McCollum. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, my brother goes to Yale, and when I went there recently, I was driving, and I drove by the Basketball Hall of Fame. Kind of a cool-looking place. Yeah, it really is. You have to look uh, very hard to find my uh, name on the inscription. It's about one, one-eighth of an inch high, but uh, nevertheless, I never thought I'd be in there, so I did, uh, I did make it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it, and we really love the book, Dream Team. Uh, we actually named it our book club, Book of the Month, Book of the Year this year, which is probably as big of an honor as the Hall of Fame itself, I'm sure. 
Um, but we, you know, we just really enjoyed the book. We know it's out on paperback now. And I just wonder, last time we talked to you, it was just coming out. That was about a year ago now. What, what is the, now that the process is kind of complete, you got the paperback out, looking back, what are you most proud of in terms of this book? I guess it would probably be uh, being able to uh, to get to all of them. Um, I think the only way this was going to work was to get the perspective of all the guys, uh, you know, 20 years later. And uh, as you go on in this business, you realize how hard it is to get famous people to sit still for things. And I always feel as a journalist that, you know, when – when I have them on, quote, my turf, that is, I'm talking to them, and I've, I'm asking the questions, and I have a tape recorder, that, that's sort of like, okay, now I know what I'm doing. But the process by which to, to rank, you know, rail all these guys in, I mean, it's like herding cats. If cats all of, uh, you know, all had uh, millions of dollars. So, I, you know, in order for it to work when I started out, I really needed to get all the guys. So there's obviously other things I'm proud of, but I don't think anybody would understand the difficulty of that uh, process, and I'm glad I was able to do it. Was Jordan the most difficult? Well, in a way, he wasn't. I mean, he, he certainly loomed as the most difficult. He's had a, uh, an ancient war with Sports Illustrated. It had right. nothing to do with me. Jordan likes me okay, but... You know, but who turned out to be the most difficult was uh, was Larry Bird, just due to the fact that I don't know he didn't seem to want to talk, and then he canceled one appointment, and uh, the book was actually finished uh, when when I called Bird. I was going in for an operation, and I called up Bird's uh, secretary, and I said, uh, "Tell Larry that if I die on the table." Uh, my last thought is going to be that Bird didn't uh, talk to me. <laughs> so uh, please tell him to uh, get on the phone. And he got on the phone, and I arranged to go out to Indianapolis because, you know, the other thing I wanted to do was talk to talk to everybody in person. So in many ways, uh, Jordan was the runner-up, and, and Larry was probably the most difficult. You know, one thing I really loved about the book was, I guess this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the book, but it did have something to do with you, it Was that was that, you got to read the book, and then you got to watch. Actually, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe I got to watch the NBA TV's documentary about the Dream Team, and then I read the book. It was right around the same time. I don't remember what came first. Actually, I think I was about halfway through the book when I watched it. But you, and you played a big part of that special as well. And I was thinking about this when I was watching the Dr. J documentary that they did recently. That I thought the one thing that that documentary lacked was someone like yourself who had just invested so much time on the story, being a part of the documentary. What about the documentary and the role that that played maybe in promoting the book or complimenting the book, or what did you think about that? Well, uh, the first thing to emphasize, well, I'll, 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 say the, I'll say the egotistical thing first. I mean, they contacted me, and I think when you're a journalist and I went through it the way that a lot of the guys making the documentary did not, although some of them did, that I was able to supply some storylines, and it was very nice of them to include me because it's, I mean, I've done a lot of television. They don't have to. I mean, they can talk to you for four hours, and they can show, uh, they can show 2.5 seconds of you, but they listened to what I had to say, and they followed some of the storylines, and they did use a lot of what I said. Having said that, 
there is no doubt that television is still a much more powerful medium than a book. And I have absolutely no doubt that a, a, a large part of the success of my book was due to the fact that many, many people watched the documentary. Actually, the timing was the documentary came out almost exactly with the book being launched. The documentary was actually a couple days beforehand. They continued to run it throughout the summer. Right. And one really fed into the other, and as a medium, you just, you know, you do not get any more powerful than television. And I think uh, at the end of the day, you know, they complemented each other uh, very well, and I was very thankful the documentary came out. And I thought, incidentally, not because I was in it, I thought it was a terrific documentary. I thought they did a terrific job. Yeah, I think a great example of what you're saying is the the scrimmage game that we got to see some footage of on the documentary and and read about in more detail in your book. I think that's a perfect example of something where we got to learn the details of the back-and-forth famous scrimmage, and then we got to see some of it, which was really cool. Yeah, video is always a powerful thing. And when I started out doing the book... uh, one of the things I wanted to do was find this, quote, lost scrimmage between the teams. I mean, I was the one, you know, first one to find it. And I do think the uh, the documentary, you know, had heard that I had it. And I do think that they may have scrounged up <laughs> some of the uh, some of the video because uh, because I had it. Because in terms of a archaeological find in the basketball world, uh the Dream Team inter-squad scrimmage in Monte Carlo was uh, was at the top of the list. When you look back at the process, how about authoring a book with all the new media, with the website that you launched for the book? With I know in conjunction with putting out the book, you created your Twitter name, and you were on Twitter basically because you had the book. I think that's what you told us last time you were on. What did you think about going through the process of writing a book now, with all the new media in place, as opposed to when you put your son's book out, for example? Well, uh, good question, and a, and a couple things are different. When I put out the son's book, uh, I was still regular, a regular uh, senior writer at Sports Illustrated. In between the son's book and the dream team, I just decided I was tired of traveling, and I, and I took a, a buyout from the company, although I maintained a close relationship and continue with Sports Illustrated. So to an extent, I'm an independent entity. You know, I, I don't have, I mean, people still associate me with Sports Illustrated, and I couldn't be happier about that. Uh, and I hope they're somewhat happy sometimes. But, uh, you know, when you're my age, you, you know, I started out on a typewriter. So you better be able to come around to the fact that new media is happening, and you got to get into it. Or you can just be one of these people going, ah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and it becomes increasingly important when you're an independent person that the way essentially you market yourself, you know, I don't have a Sports Illustrated handle. I have my own. And it's become fun for me. And it's it's not only that, but during the process of doing the book, I mean, some of the people that really wrote about the book most intelligently, uh, not to mention most provocatively, were websites. You know, Deadspin, uh, Henry Abbott on True Hoop uh, did a lot of things. So you can't be one of these old media guys that says no new media is no good and then go around and the only way you get publicity sometimes is new media. So you better come around and understand the whole process, even when you're an old, uh, an old goat like I am. 
You know, you mentioned that you still have a relationship with Sports Illustrated, and a couple of editions ago, uh, you had a really great piece, I thought, in there about you called it the best finals ever, going over the 93 championship between the Bulls and the Suns, and it was kind of an oral history, which I thought was a really interesting way to approach it, and you kind of mentioned some of the troubles with doing the oral history, and as you mentioned before, one of those big troubles is is Jordan not being willing to do anything with SI for whatever silly reason he has for that. I guess they made fun of him for baseball or made critical of his baseball career or something like that. But um, I really enjoyed the the column, and I was just wondering kind of what you thought about doing the, doing the piece and the way that you did it with it being the oral history. Well, i got to give uh, credit there. It was, uh, it was a 20-year anniversary, and like a lot of great ideas, and the Dream Team was one of them, uh, was not my idea. The publisher uh, from, from Random House had the idea that we were, you know, four years four years ago or five years ago now that hey, hey we're coming up on twenty years on the Dream Team. Wouldn't it be great if? And this was the same thing. I, I didn't think of this myself. Uh, Mark Bechtel, uh, who's the basketball editor, and Chris Stone, who's the managing editor. I'm not sure who hatched it, but they said, hey, hey twenty years ago there was this great finals, and this would be a good way to celebrate that anniversary. And we all talked about that the oral history uh, was a great way to do it because I think a lot of times people think that, and as a writer, it's one of kind of maybe the easy way out. In other words, any kind of narrative connections that you're getting are supplied by quotes. But every time, and to a certain extent, that's true. But the flip side of that is when you do this kind of thing, I think what gives it makes it work is a variety of uh, voices. So I ended up calling, you know, spending spending as much time trying to get in touch with people and for the most part succeeded as I would have uh, with the more difficult process of stringing it together without all quotes. So people seem to really like it, and I was, uh, you know, proud of it and think that it, uh, I, I thought that it was uh, really well-received uh, in general. You know, I have a question for you. Do you, do you honestly believe it was the best finals ever? And I have no reason to doubt you. I take your word for it, and you certainly presented a great case in the piece, and I don't have a reason to, I don't have another one to throw up at you to debate. But I was listening to Chris Russo, and he kind of took a shot at it and maybe spent five or ten minutes on his show kind of giving reasons why he didn't think there was any way it could be. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, uh, I didn't hear I didn't hear Dog's uh, thing, but I, I will say this. He was hung up on six games, you know. There, there is, there is uh, no way, there is no place in the piece that I actually say it's the best finals ever. And my suggestion about the headline was that it had a question mark. <laughs> so... You've heard this uh, writers before saying, I didn't write the headline, and I didn't write the headline. If you read the piece, I really don't say that it is the best finals ever. The headline says it, and personally, I would have rather that they would have had a question mark because, you know, proclaiming anything of which there has been, thinking quickly, how many finals has there been, 60, 70 finals by now, uh you know, probably was kind of a leap. And the one, th- one of the arguments against it being the best finals ever was that it was not seven games. Right, and that's kind you of know, what Dog was hung up on. Yeah. So I, I didn't, uh, you know, I know that I took, you know, other people have asked me about it. But if you go back and read the piece, I don't say that. 
the headline says that. So uh, what are you going to do? Right. One thing we talked about last time, and I was thinking about it a little bit more, was when you were full-time covering this league, you were doing so. Frank DeFord was another guy who was doing it for the magazine, and what a great period of basketball writing that the magazine was lucky to have there. And I think that right now they have as good a basketball writers as anyone in the world between Chris Ballard, who I think is fantastic, and Lee Jenkins, who in full disclosure has been really, really good to us and appeared on our show more than anyone else. But what do you think about SI and its kind of place as one of the premier spots for basketball writing and be compared to your era with you and Frank and now with Chris and Lee really, really doing great work as well? Well, I mean, I can't. You know, one of the things that happens when you get ready to leave a place, uh, particularly a place that has a stable of talent like SI, I mean, I remember saying this over and over to myself. I said, everybody's going to tell you they'll miss you, uh, and, and they will to a certain extent. But I didn't know who was exactly going to follow in the stead. But I knew they were going to be good. <laughs> I knew they were going to be good. And, you know, I read uh, Chris and Lee are both, you know, good friends of mine. Uh, and they, they, it's just unbelievably strong. I mean, I say, Jenkins and I have kind of a joke that I say, you know, well, once again, nobody missed me after a story he did. And we all have our little eras, you know. I mean, well, one of the keys to basketball writing, I think, particularly in the pro level, well, I mean, Alex Wolf's always been able to do it in college, but, you know, you've got to make your bones with the best guys. I mean, you've got to be able to somehow get them to talk to you. And, I mean, that's what I was able to do with the Dream Team era. But, you know, I, that had passed. And, and Chris and Lee both have been able to, you know, to get it done and have build up a rapport with, uh, with guys like uh, LeBron and, and Dwayne Wade and particularly Kevin Durant and some of the other guys, and that's that's what you need to do. I mean, kind of the last guy quote for me is Kobe, you know, because Kobe kind of bridges uh, bridges both generations. And honestly, uh, Ballard and and Lee Lee does sort of more what I did, you know, kind of the game feature type of thing. Right. And he's the master of it. I mean, whatever you put Lee on, whether it was baseball or football you're going to get a remarkable story. Ballard's really, uh, you know, a hoop head, but uh, he can write other stuff, too. I mean, he wrote a great book about this. Uh, one Shot It Forever. Baseball. Yeah. yeah, yeah, One Shot It Forever, which was a fantastic book. And, uh, I can, you know, I couldn't be more, when I look at the magazine, uh, you know, and I see the stories in there, I, uh, all I can say, I always say the same thing, is I, I, you know, I'm just so proud to have worked there because, the level of work that's still done there and was always done there uh, has been so high. Yeah, it's so interesting hearing you say about making your bones with the big guys because I think back to that amazing article last year that Chris Ballard had with Tim Duncan and really kind of got him to open up in a way that I had never seen him print before. It's really kind of a perfect example of what you're saying there. I don't know if you yeah, recall the piece, but... Oh, yeah, no, it was... Oh, sure, I did. I used yeah. it. I did a piece on Greg Popovich... Uh, a couple months ago, and, you know, in a, in a way that kind of, you know, a little bit paved the way that I didn't have to work for nine days to get Tim to talk to me. You know, I mean, we talked for a few minutes, but he was already kind of on the record about what he thought about Pop. And, you know, one thing I'd like to emphasize is when, when Chris gets through to Duncan or Lee gets 
through to LeBron or I get through to Kobe or Popovich. Uh, trust me, it's never as easy as it looks. <laughs> it's never it, it's never one phone call. It's never tap on the shoulder. Hey, I need three hours of your time so you can spill your guts out. It, it never works like that. It's always uh, more difficult than it looks. <laughs> Believe me, we know about that. I mean, we are usually looking for 15 minutes, and it's, it's tough, but, you know... It, the better you can treat people and the better reputation you get, the you know, the kind of easier it gets. And I think that when you see someone who's accomplished what he's accomplished at the level that you have over and over, you know you're talking to a guy who knows how to treat people and has been able to gain the respect of people who it's not the easiest to gain the respect, you know, pro athletes. But uh, the book is called Dream Team, as we said, how Michael Magic, Larry Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed the game of basketball forever. New York Times bestseller. It's available in paperback now. And you can find Mr. McCollum on Twitter at M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M-12. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And I guess this is kind of a last thing. What can we look forward to in the future from you? Are we going to just be seeing the magazine articles here and there? Or do you have another book in you? Or what's kind of your plan for the future? Well, I, you know, in a, in a complete departure, which probably won't uh, impress your uh, listenership very much, but I have a book on... Uh, prostate cancer coming out in September because I had it last year and there's a lot of, uh, I'm rid of it, I'm fine, you know, everything's good, but uh, there's a lot of controversy, there's a lot of questions about it, it's a very prevalent uh, cancer, so I kind of took it sort of what I'm calling the lighter side of uh, prostate cancer, that book's coming out in uh, September, it's called uh, The Prostate Monologues, and uh, I might be working on a book with with somebody else, a coach in basketball uh, pretty soon. I'm just kind of firming uh, that up. So I'm busy enough. Very good. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. All right. I want to thank Jason Lackenfora and Jack McCollum for being on the podcast today. Two of the Big guys in the sportscaster Rolodex. I want to thank them very much for being on. Don't forget next week, Greg Cassell, the nephew of Howard Cassell from the NFL Network and NFL Films, is going to join us to talk about the upcoming season of Hard Knocks, uh, what's going to be on the NFL Network this summer, and also plans for the coverage of football on the NFL Network and beyond. For the future, look forward to uh, speaking a little bit with Greg. A um, couple things. Don't forget to find us at our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find this episode and last week's with Michael Fabiano and Sean McIndoe of Down Goes Brown. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters, and you can always email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. So that brings us up to our last piece of business for today which is one last thing. And I'm going to start us off yesterday or Monday. Peter King started his vacation from his Monday morning quarterback column on SI. And every year when he goes on vacation, he has some guest writers who write the column for him. And the first guest writer of this column was Steve Gleason. Steve Gleason is a former New Orleans Saint who probably a lot more of you know about today than you did maybe two days ago, and certainly a lot more of you know of him now than you did when he was a player. Because as a player, he was a seven-year, basically a special teams guy, 
played for the Saints. He was a captain on the team, which is very rare for a guy who pretty much exclusively plays special teams. But that's the kind of guy he was. He earned a spot on the team every year, and he worked hard to keep that spot. And he had one of the biggest plays in Saints history, which is a highlight that we've played many times on this show. He's the guy who blocked the Falcons' punt on the fourth play from scrimmage in the first game back in the Superdome after Katrina. Has a statue now. Yep, with sure is a statue out in front of the stadium, which there is no Falcons logo on said statue because the Falcons uh, refused to allow the Saints to do that. And that is what it is. Not that big of a deal. What is a big deal is that a couple of, I guess we'll call them shock jocks. Sure. uh, And before we get to that, I wanted to mention a really cool thing. Uh, If you haven't checked out Steve Gleason's column that he wrote for Peter Queen, do it. It's a great column. Really heartfelt column. You learn a lot about how he put the column together, which is actually him typing it up with his eyes. Yeah. You know, which is a really incredible technology and a really great thing. He's a funny guy, too. Yeah. I laughed a couple times reading. Really great sense of humor. And, of course, for Don and I, really cool to find out that he's going to be one of four guys that are going to be able to uh, interview Pearl Jam in the upcoming weeks about their 10th. CD. Right. Yeah, that was real cool. Yeah, really looking forward to that. He kind of mentions that he thinks they're one of the top five most significant American rock bands of the past 50 years. And just a very Pearl Jam thing of them to give. You're only given four interviews for the album, and and it's this guy who's not necessarily an interviewer. Right. Right? So just a lot of really cool things. Well, anyway, despite as cool as this column was, there was a couple guys in Atlanta who thought that it was open game – to make fun of it. Of and course, ALS, yes. special teams guy for the Saints, yes. right in the middle of all that controversy. Peter King does a story. No, no, no. He gives him the whole Monday morning quarterback. In the entire, uh, it's it's Steve Gleason basically gives you Monday morning quarterback. He goes on to explain his diagnosis, what he needed to do, how at 20 words per minute. He can't speak. Through technology, no. He actually, with, with his, his eyes. eyes. Yes. Eye. Yeah. Is he doing like a media tour? I'm not really sure. I know he did this. Is that right? Joining us right now, Steve Gleason on uh, Sports Radio 790, The Zone. Steve, uh, congratulations on the uh, Peter King piece. Hello, Stank. How's Nola? (laughs) Nola's great. We had a great Father's Day yesterday. I appreciate appreciate you asking. Are you listening in New Orleans? I am. Chris, how was the Jersey Shore? I just don't know if I want to play. <laughs> I, mean, I wish pre- I could play. <laughs> yeah, you cannot play anymore, right? No. Knock, knock. Oh, oh see, no, Steve. We, 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 we do knock, knocks on Thursdays. We don't do it on Mondays, and we just started doing that again. on. We do it on Thursdays. I may not be here on Thursday. That's, knock, that's knock. not all I really want to hear of it. It just goes downhill from there. I'm always worried when we do this show. Are we going to say something we regret? Is something going to slip out of our mouth that shouldn't have? Am I going to take the wrong angle on a story? Is there something that's going to make this podcast no more because nobody's ever going to come on it anymore? But this isn't that. This is a premeditated bit. They had jokes prepared for it. Three separate knock-knock jokes prepared. They start out with the mocking... Of the heavy breathing. The one guy's name is Steak Shapiro. 
Like, is that really his name? First name Steak? My guess would be no. I'm surprised. That's the co. He's the co-founder of the station. It's hard not to have heard this, but I'm surprised when they called them shock jocks that it's actually a sports station. Yeah, like, it's I, actually the where the Atlanta Falcons games are aired. Oh, brutal. The other anchor is Nick Cellini, and then there was a third guy. All three have been fired. Congratulations to the station, which is 790, right? I believe, in Atlanta. Congratulations to them for doing the wrong thing. But what a just gross, disgusting – and, you know, and, of course, these guys have surfaced on Twitter apologizing for right, right. the gross misconduct. And, you know, hey – we make mis- we all make mistakes, but this was just awful, and they deserve what they got, and I'm glad they're fired. And I know it has nothing to do with the team and nothing to do with the fans, but boy, am I pumped up yeah. for opening day. To me, as far as uh, this goes, I listen to a lot of Opie and Anthony. You listen to Howard Stern. I know you listen to some Opie and Anthony, too. This is a bit like they would do, and they would probably not get in trouble for it, but What's more insulting to me is, I mean, even Steve Gleason poked fun of it himself in the Tuesday morning quarter or the Monday morning quarterback, sorry, article, and said like he should do a sitcom where every thing that he responds to is delayed because it takes him a second to type up what his little computer has to say. So he's not above poking fun at himself, and that's okay. A little sense of humor about it is fine. This is right. way beyond that. It, I just thought they it, asked him to. He, he, one of the things he says is to smother me. Right, as right. in kill me. I just it wasn't funny. So I mean, if you're gonna do that, in the bigger issue is that come on, you got to know better. You know what I mean? Like that's the dumbest part to me is you're on a regular over the air radio station, not that, rookies, veterans, right? That has FCC rules and uh, it's very sensitive, and they've got uh, advertisers and stuff. It's just very, very stupid, stupid play on their part, and. Uh, my thing, one last thing for me this week is comes from another stupid person, and that is Juanetta Gibson. We've talked about her in the past, and her link to Brian Banks, who's slightly more famous than her name. Brian yeah, Banks got was, what she deserved too, huh? right? She Brian Banks was wrongfully accused uh, and prosecuted and arrested for a rape, basically on hearsay. There was no evidence. Just this one girl from school who luckily – we've talked about this. I won't go into it too long, but she shot herself in the foot. And after he got out of prison, she found him on Facebook and wanted to hang out basically. So he recorded their conversation where she said it was all untrue and now he's out. Uh, she's been forced to pay $2.6 million in damages to Long Beach School District for, I guess – Well, because she went on damage. to sue the school right. district and won over a million dollars in her – yeah, she won $1.5 million. And what I don't – I mean, I, I can't claim to know how they're going to get any of that money back. Probably won't. They won't, I'm sure. But at least she'll have nothing that she got from the $1.5 million. Uh, she's a disgusting human being. She's an idiot. I'm glad she got what she deserved. And I've been a supporter of Brian Banks. I'm sure you're slightly less so now that he's an Atlanta Falcon. But, <laughs> well, best to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he just seems like – the strongest person this could have happened to because everything you read about him is super positive and he's just handled this all really, really admirable, admirably. So good luck to him. And, uh, Winetta Gibson, uh, you got what you deserve. 
baby gonna hold her tight Gonna grab some afternoon delight My motto's always been when it's right, it's right Why wait until the middle of a cold dark night When everything's a little clearer in